Hello, Bell Curve listeners. We are so excited to be with you today, and we are especially excited to say a shout out to our good friend, Mary Norton. We are on Patreon now, and if you want to support us at patreon.com slash bellcurvepod, it, it helps us immensely. And just this last week, we had our very first listener sign up, Mary Norton, and we want to thank her especially since she was the very first one out of the shoot to support Bell Curve Pod, and we encourage you to support us too. So I'm Mary Scott Hunter, and I am here today with my co-hosts, Liz Bashirs and Rachel Breyers, and we have a great episode today. We are bringing to you a very special guest. Stephanie Bolton is a practicing board certified music therapist since 1997. She worked with adults in acute psychiatric care, children with special needs, and individuals diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. She has trained undergraduate music therapy students in their preclinical and practicum courses. Her master's thesis focused on the effects of live and recorded music on the perceived pain levels in the elderly diagnosed with arthritis. She is a fellow of the Association for Music and Imagery, She has operated her Huntsville-based private practice since 2009. Her practice goals focus on individuals who are experiencing life changes such as parenthood, marriage, divorce, empty nest, and job and career transitions. Many of her clients have sought her out for help with depression, anxiety, personal growth, and relationship issues. She is especially interested in helping women, and that really jumped out to us. Uh, She welcomes the opportunity to gain more experience with cancer care. So Stephanie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me to be here. So what caught our attention with you is an article that you posted on LinkedIn about choosing relaxing music. And I want to get to that. Uh, I think that that is something that I never thought about too much, but it's really important. And I want to talk to you about that article. And for our listeners, we're going to post that article uh, in a link in our show notes. But I want to just kick it off because your article got me thinking about music in general and choosing relaxing music is one piece of it. But first, I want to understand why certain music goes with certain things. Like, We think of certain music for football. We think of certain music for cleaning. We think of certain music for driving. We think of certain music as romantic. Why? You're a musician. You're also in this career field where you're, you're advising people and using music to advise them and to help them. And I figured if there's anybody that I could ask that question, it would be you. Yes. Well, I think most people who maybe aren't musicians first don't think of using music in a constructive or a purposeful way. Um, We might throw on music, you know, in the car or to clean the house, but we don't give it a whole lot of extra thought. And that was part of why I wrote the article about choosing relaxing music, because I would hear so many people, you know, when you go through Target or Walmart and they've got that setup of this relaxing CDs and you can kind of punch all the buttons and you get a different sound and it's supposed to be relaxing for everyone. Frankly, some of that isn't very relaxing at all because music is so individual that we bring with 
each of us, our own life experience, our associations, our memories, our knowledge of music to every musical experience, that that kind of colors how we interpret it and how we feel when we listen to something. So somebody who maybe grew up here in the Deep South would have certain feelings about gospel music compared to someone who grew up in a different part of the country who maybe had a different upbringing or different exposure to music. And so they'd have different reactions. So it's important to kind of know how music affects us all physiologically because that stays the same regardless of what our life experience or a musical experience is. I just have to say that it resonates so deeply because I have straight up left workout classes and thought my whole class was ruined by the music. Like yes. a deep visceral response. And, I, and I've wondered, does everyone feel that way? For, like to me, I struggle with thinking that is objectively a bad song. How could anyone like it? And I have to remind myself, well, someone loves it. And the things that I think are objectively, that is a great song. Someone hates it. Right. And I mean, kudos to you for knowing that it was the music that was turning you off. A lot of people just don't even realize that the music was what was made what made something a bad experience. It's so often in the background, we don't pay attention. It's just part of the background. Um, But it's really important to pay attention to what it is and what's going on. So football music really isn't football music. It's football music because I've heard it as football music. (laughs) Cleaning music really isn't cleaning. It's just, it's cleaning music for me because that's what I associate. What is football music to you? I'm just curious. I don't know. Like ACDC and, you know, um, Sweet Home Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it's the music that you hear in the stadium. And cleaning music to me is Elvis Presley. Um, thinking music is Miles Davis. That that, but I guess maybe what you're telling me is that wouldn't be the same for Stephanie, Rachel, and Liz. That w- it would be something else. Right. My thinking music is Gregorian chant, so it's very individual. It's very different based on you know your own preferences and what you like and what you've learned to appreciate. It's so funny. One of our first sort of arguments, if you want to call you that, is not really, but just something we disagreed on was the, the, <laughs> I forgot the, about this. Yeah, the theme music. This is great. And, this is a great example. And I have to admit that y'all, I hate our intro songs. <laughs> I hate it. Rachel! Oh, I told y'all that, but I did take one for the team on that and was happy to do that. But Mary Scott loved it. I did. I still love it. I don't remember you saying you hated it. I think we, by the time we finally, like, we are all so over the process of yes. figuring out the dang song yes. <laughs> that we're all just like, whatever. Mary Scott loves it, so we'll go there. But I think it's fun. It's grown on me. <laughs> so really, you invited me here for a group music therapy session. Yes, there we go. <laughs> we're bringing up all our past bitterness over music. If you could go back and hear the conversations we had, that was quite a saga. We were, I, I, I hope I didn't beat y'all down. I don't, I, I just remember loving it so much. Y'all were, <laughs> so yes, we had trouble on that. I think this brings up a really good point that music is very emotional for people. Mm. We feel strongly about what we like and what we don't like. And there's very little in music that we sort of find neutral. You know, I have those certain songs where when they come on the radio, it's like, I can change the channel in three notes. And I think we all sort of have that reaction sometimes to music. It's what we would think of as like elevator music, an attempt at neutral, like neutrality. 
Yes. And that's what makes it bad. <laughs> because it there's, bad. there's no emotion there because it's meant to be that way. You know, it's meant to be neutral. It's meant to, like, you're just in an elevator. You're going somewhere. You're not really there to do anything. You're not there to dance or work out or have a good cry. You're just going to an office. Well, Stephanie, what is going on in the brain when we hear music we don't like? Or what what happens to us? Oh, the brain question. So what happens in our brains when we hear music is that music is one of the few activities that we do that encompasses our entire brain. Like our whole brain will light up when we're listening to music. And the good thing about that is that it is a whole brain activity. So if there is any kind of brain damage or trauma, that the brain can learn to rewire itself through music, which is Mm. a great thing. And it also releases all of those good brain chemicals that we like, like dopamine, So it helps us in reducing our stress and feeling less anxious. It boosts our immune system. It just helps us to generally feel better. That's when we listen to music that we like that's good or that we consider good. When we listen to music we don't like or that we have a negative reaction to, those things don't necessarily happen. I mean, our whole brain will light up, but we don't necessarily get that dopamine hit. Can you use music? Well, I I mean, I guess I know the answer to this already before, but so music can cure us or can help us with certain ailments. Yes. People can, who've had strokes can relearn how to speak um, through music therapy and singing specifically because singing is located in a different part of the brain than speech is. So depending on where the damage is in your brain that might be affecting your speech, you can relearn how to talk through singing. There's quite a lot of research about that. But yes, music can help you rewire the um, neural pathways in your brain. I'm so glad we're discussing the science behind music selection, because I think intuitively, this just resonates so much with me, just the idea of music being a powerful influence on the brain, mindset, spirit, really just as long as I can remember, I've sort of intuitively felt that way. I think I've come to the conclusion that music is really a powerful asset in my life to heal, to motivate, to inspire, to energize. Mm -hmm. But really, most of all for me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, I've realized it's the main art form I use to tease out and experience emotion. So for instance, the three Enneagram numbers I relate to the most are the nine, one, and five. And we're not really known for, quote, going there emotionally, either because we've numbed or stuffed our emotions or we're terrified of letting them show. We've got great poker faces. But, you know, I feel like I need to feel I still need a way to release the emotional pressure valve. And for me, music is the way I do that. So it's not uncommon for me to listen to a song and feel it so deeply. It makes me literally cry. But I struggle to feel that level of emotion in just my regular life. So do you hear that often with your clients? And can you sort of explain what's going on with that that emotional connection that music can bring out? Yes. First, I'll virtually high five you as an Enneagram five as well. (laughs) So I'm totally feeling you on that because there are times I sing. I sing in a group at my church and I tell the people standing next to me that sometimes I cry. Don't worry about it because it is that kind of emotional reaction and response and relation for me in music. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but maybe don't necessarily identify it as such, or they get overwhelmed with the emotions and then kind of just shut it down. Mm. And so what I tend to do with my clients in music therapy is help them modulate 
that or regulate that emotional connection and response and teach them how to, whether it's through music or through some other techniques, how to manage that on their own. So they sort of know how to let off that emotional steam, but how to manage that as well so it doesn't get to be overwhelming, doesn't get to be too much for them. So do you combine the music with other techniques like meditation or yoga or what what techniques are your clients combining music with? I encourage all my clients to do some kind of meditation or mindfulness practice um, because I think that's just really helpful. I mean, there's research that shows that that is really great at reducing stress and boosting your immune system, just helping with concentration and focus and mood regulation as well. So I encourage all my clients to participate in that in some shape or form. And sometimes music can support that and be part of that practice. Some people have strong feelings about, you know, the the purity of a mindfulness session and how it needs to be silent and quiet. But I found that sometimes it's hard. I know for me, it's hard to just sit in silence. I need something going on. Otherwise, my brain just gets way too active in itself. And I need that background music to support my mindfulness practice. So there are ways that we can incorporate both of those things. On the other side of that, though, I do sometimes find myself if I'm riding in the car and I have music going, but I'm like looking for something, I'm looking for an address or I might be looking at a menu for a drive through restaurant. I have to turn down the music so I can think. Is it just, yes. why, why does that happen? I do the same thing. I, when I go to the bank teller, I have to turn off the radio mm-hmm. because I'm like, they might ask me questions and I can't concentrate on what the music is doing and what they want to know from me. Um, and I don't want to give them the wrong account number. So, but I think it's sometimes music, especially if it has lyrics in it, can be really distracting because what our brains do is we like words. We're language-based people, so we like listening to things. So when the music has lyrics, we tend to want to listen and sing along in our head if we know the song. Um, That's one of the tips in my article, actually, was uh, I talk a little bit about having lyrics in music when you're trying to relax or not having them in. And some people find it that it's helpful to have the lyrics. Most people find that it's just really distracting Mm -hmm. Um, and keeps you from being able to fully relax if you're just sitting there singing along to the song, then you're not focused on relaxing anymore. You know, I I agree with that, and I have found that in my life. But when I I listen to music in another language, I I have this long time ago that movie Buena Vista Social Club came out, and it was all about the music of Havana. And Mm -hmm. this is when Havana was still closed, but somebody went down and was able to capture some of the musicians and some of the music that had survived in in Havana and but of course it's all in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish Um, I I do a little but not enough to follow the words in the in the music and it's the same effect or if you listen to the three tenors and they're not and most of the time they're not singing their opera music in English (laughs) it's you know it's German or Italian or another language. And that can have the same effect because I don't speak the language. So I'm not trying to figure it out all the time. That's kind of my one exception to the lyrics rule is that if you don't understand the language, it becomes like another um, instrument because you're not, you sort of listen for a second and identify it as, oh, they're singing in Italian. I don't need to listen to that because I don't know Italian. And then you stop listening or paying attention to the lyrics because you just know, I don't know what that means. 
Stephanie, this might be a little bit bro science, but I remember hearing it and I've been wanting to ask an expert ever since. Is there something to the idea that we have little hairs in our ears that stand up as receptors? And if we're listening to music, say, while we're trying to sleep, that is disrupting our sleep to some extent to have something going on in our brains at the same time? I don't know. (laughs) I think I want to say that could be partially true. I think there are little hairs that stand up in your ears because that's how the sound waves get to your eardrum to then continue vibrating to get into your brain to identify a sound. I don't know that that's about the second part of what you said about how that that's disruptive to sleep. Um, That might be just a personal preference. For my clients who have difficulty sleeping or who struggle with insomnia, I'll recommend with that we create a playlist together for sleeping so that they can then, they have something to help them fall asleep. And then if they wake up in the middle of the night, they have something to help them fall back asleep. And no one's ever really said that that's disruptive for sleeping. So that might just come down to an individual idiosyncrasy. So let's get into your article. Your article that you published is titled Four Tips for Choosing Relaxing Music. So walk us through those tips, Stephanie. Okay. Well, we, we sort of touched on one of them about lyrics. But one thing that you need to remember is that the tempo of whatever music you're listening to needs to be pretty moderate. So you know when you want to work out, you want something upbeat and fast. That makes sense. When you're going to sleep, you want something with a slow tempo because that makes sense. You're falling asleep. You need to slow down. When you're relaxing, you want something kind of in the middle. So not too fast, not too slow. And you don't want anything that kind of changes tempo that maybe starts out slow and then speeds up because you want yourself to remain kind of stable Mm -hmm. in that relaxation moment. The other thing to think about is the dynamics of the music. And dynamics in music, for those who aren't musicians, just means how loud or quiet a piece is. And you want, again, just like the tempo, you want the dynamics to kind of remain the same throughout the song. You don't want any big, sudden, you know, cymbal crashes uh, or surprises in there (laughs) because that just disrupts the whole relaxation that you've got going on. So that should also remain kind of stable. The fewer instruments, the better. So this is something that some people um, struggle with sometimes. If you think about like when you go to a cocktail party, how many people are in the room and how many noises there are and how much sound that is just coming into your ears, that can be really overstimulating. Mm. So when you're listening to music, you need to think about each instrument as a voice or a person talking. So you don't want a piece that has 20 people talking to you because that's too much information. You want something that only has three or four things going on. So think maybe like a solo guitar with some, like a background keyboard and ocean waves. That would be three things that go into one piece. Can I interrupt you right there? I I read that in your article, I I thought about retreat in the military. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when it's time to shut down and you know turn the lights out and the and the what comes out of the loudspeakers is, is retreat and it's a certain song and it's one instrument I, I i like oh okay you know and when you when all you hear is a trumpet you know when there's only the sound of the or just the sound of a piano and that's it and or just the a, a single violinist there's just something so 
yeah, relaxing about that. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought about it until I saw that in your article. I'm like, yeah, when it is just one instrument, of course, you know, if it's a, it's a, if it's reveille in the morning, that's not relaxing, but because it's, that's that's a whole different tempo. Yeah, that's a whole different tempo. That's the wrong tempo. But I'm talking about, you know, when one, one instrument playing a relaxing, even tempoed song, boy, I, but I never had thought about it until you mentioned right. it, but you're so right it's, about that. It's quieting. And then lastly, it needs to be music that you find relaxing. So like what we Mary Scott mentioned earlier, what I find relaxing is different than what she finds relaxing is different than anyone else finds relaxing. So it's important that you find what works for you and not necessarily what, you know, Target has in their little punch button relaxation CD selection today. <laughs> it's funny what you said, going back a point about things don't need to overstimulate you. I, I was recalling recently that when I first ha- when I had my first child, it was striking to me. And I remember I couldn't tolerate music as often as I had before. I used to listen to music all the time. I'd go in my room. That was the first thing I did in the car. But the entry of a lot of crying and just it was just a new thing to process in my brain at that time with, mm-hmm. a, with a young baby. I, I realized I went quite a long time with not having that music habit. And it helps me make sense of that, that I was just probably overstimulated with all the sound, the new sound going on in a new way. Yes, absolutely. I know when I several years ago, I used to work with kids and I would spend six hours a day solid just playing music all day long. And I would get home and my daughter was probably three or four at the time and she would want to do music. And I'd be like, you know, mommy's ears are full. (laughs) It needs to be quiet for a little while. And so I think that speaks to your, you know, sometimes we forget that everything that enters our ears is stimulation, whether it's music or kids crying or noise or bosses yelling at us or whatever. And we need to break that up with some silence, with some rest. Even in music, there's rest in between notes. That's part of what makes it music. Following that, Stephanie, I know we have several listeners who have kids with special needs or who are on the spectrum who have or maybe looking for some services for somebody like you who can offer therapeutic music sessions. What should some of those families look for in the kind of services you offer to to find a good fit for them? They need to make sure they're board certified because we have the education and training to support that kind of work. They also need to, if they can't find a music therapist in their area, one thing they can do on their own is just watch the stimulation level for their kids. There's so much that goes into, especially kids on the spectrum and stimulation, whether that's like a tactile or a vibroacoustic or auditory stimulation. There's so many ways those kids can get overstimulated really quickly. And so part of it is just figuring out how to keep the kids comfortable so that the stimulation doesn't then become um, acting out or some of the negative behaviors that they'll um, display because they're overstimulated and they just have no other way to communicate that they don't feel right. Oh, and that is, I I have seen children and and been around children that it's clear that they're completely overstimulated Mm -hmm. and And you just want to put earmuffs on them and help them to just shut out a little bit of the noise because it's obvious that it is so 
it is such a burden, so much more of a burden for some to have that much stimulation flowing in, which for some kids and for some adults, it's, you know, they can handle a lot, but others, oh my goodness. And you can mm-hmm. just see them almost visibly shutting down in front of you. Right. And again, just like with any other kind of music, that's so highly individual. I used to work with a kid who he could not stand when I played the guitar. That was too much vibration for him. But he liked a drum, which is, you know, if you look at it objectively, those two instruments vibrate, you know, the same amount. But for whatever reason, he could not tolerate the guitar but loved the drum. And so some of it is just an individual preference and what feels right to the person. Stephanie, what are some of the remarkable outcomes that you've seen in your career as a music therapist? Oh, my gosh, we don't have time for that. Um, <laughs> Just give us a after, few. We're interested. After 23 years, it's uh, it's hard to narrow it down. But I think what um, one gentleman brings to mind, I worked for several years in a skilled nursing facility, and I was referred this gentleman. He was primarily Italian-speaking. And he was, um, he spoke a little bit of English, so we could communicate some, but his background was he, he loved the opera and I am not a huge opera fan, but I'm a music therapist. So I have to do what music my clients prefer. And so what he wanted to do was listen to the opera And he and his wife used to have season tickets to the opera, and they would go all the time to see the stage performances of all these operas, specifically Italian operas, Puccini, to be particular. And so I ended up, this is the days of um, VHS tapes. And so I go to the library and check out Puccini operas, and we would, I would go up to his room Friday mornings at 10 o'clock. And we would watch one act of the opera together. And that was his way of connecting with someone in a way that he loved. It also gave him a way to choose what was happening during his day. He was pretty much wheelchair bound and had very little choice in anything that he got to do. So giving him the choice every week of, do you want to watch act two? Or do you want to watch a different opera? I tried once to get him to watch Mozart with me. And after one act of Don Giovanni, he looked at me and said, Puccini. I said, okay. Get that German out of here. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, that was one thing, but we did that for like a year and a half together, just watching the operas together. Um, but I think mostly the, the best outcome I see for people is just connection. We connect with each other through music. You know, we can share favorite songs or favorite bands or favorite memories of, oh, I went to that concert or, hey, Sweet Home Alabama means football. We can share those connections and it's a way to be with someone else in a way that otherwise may not happen. Um, We might not have that connection or develop that relationship with that person any other way than through music. And that's the powerful thing I see in it. So many of our listeners are are mothers and mothers of children of all ages and music lessons and music with kids. Talk to us about that, the advantages of children learning music, um, being exposed to music. You know, are there are there is there research on lifelong advantages in those young people? Talk to us about that. I don't know about lifelong advantages, but what I do know is there's been a fair amount of research done that supports that early music introduction, like think like the 
baby music classes, teaches kids about rhythm and movement and opens their ears to hearing different kinds of instruments. It teaches them, especially the little music, the baby music classes, like peer interactions and how to be social and appropriateness of how to, you know, how to meet a friend. But beyond that, when you're talking about music lessons and learning how to play instruments, research has shown that helps kids with their math skills, their science skills, their abstract thinking, creative problem solving. It's a whole brain activity, like we mentioned earlier, that really has some good educational benefits. But whenever I read that research, I just want to scream because I'm like, but there's the fun. There's the beauty <laughs> in music. And I don't want yeah. to, people to lose track of, you know, oh, I'm going to sign my kid up for piano lessons because it's going to make their math test better. It might. There's no denying that. And that's a good thing. But don't lose sight of the beauty and the music and the fun of being part of that and learning something new and learning the skills of having to practice to get better. I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too as a mom, you know, we just want the quick fix or we want the easy answer. And, oh, if you do this long enough, then you get better. And yay, that's great. And we miss the forest for the trees sometimes. And so I have to as a mom, remind myself, oh, sometimes it's okay to just do something because you love it, to do something because it's fun, not because you're going to get a better ACT score for this. Stephanie, if you could quickly explain why it sounds like for many of us, music means so much, but there's folks out there who just music just doesn't do it for them. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but you know what? I have to say, though, in my in all my years of being involved in music and being a music therapist, I've only really met two people who music had really zero effect on. And I think those people are really rare. I think there might be a number of people who just feel neutral about music. Maybe there are some songs that they really like, but there's nothing they really don't like, but it's not necessarily going to get them off, off, off the couch to go work out or make them dance or make them cry, but that that's okay. Not everyone's going to have that really strong emotional response to it. When a patient comes to see you, talk to us, walk us through that a little bit. Like how does, how does it work? What can they expect to get? I talk to them specifically about what I do and how it can help them and relate it to whatever it is that they're coming to see me for, whether that's, you know, a mental health issue or just personal growth, or they're dealing with grief or divorce or um, any number of life transition kind of situations. And so we work out a treatment plan about the goals that they have, what they want to accomplish. And I tell them how I think music could help with that. So if our listeners want to reach you, how do they do that? They could go to my website. It's imageryandmusic.com. Um, they can find me there. There's a contact me page on my website. They can also send me an email at stephanie at imageryandmusic.com. I am on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And LinkedIn. All the socials. And all, LinkedIn. The socials. All, all the socials. socials. Right. That's what we say. <laughs> all the socials. Well, Not Pinterest. I could never figure out Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> Neither could we. Stephanie, it has been an absolute pr pleasure to talk with you about a very interesting topic. We, It's a topic that, to be honest, I hadn't thought a lot about, and it was great to come across your article, and it was great to have you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. So March uh, is not too far away, Bell Curvies, and it will be book club day before you know it. 
Rachel, do you want to give us a little teaser on what our book is going to be in March? Sure. We are going to read Atomic Habits by James Clear. This is one of those hopefully good social science books that Liz and I tend to like. I'm going to read a quick little blurb from Amazon. It just says that we'll be able to learn how to make time for new habits, even when life gets crazy, overcome a lack of motivation and willpower, design your environment to make success easier, and get back on track when you fall off course. So I have not read this book, but it looks like it has tons of great reviews. So please pick up at your library or on Amazon or wherever you get your books, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And we'll link that in our show notes. And if you buy it through our website, that helps us, as does your patronage on Patreon. And again, we thank Mary Norton. If you are interested in being a patron, go to patreon.com slash bellcurvepod. And you can pick one of the levels. And uh, that really, really helps. So please think about that. Connect with Bell Curve on all the socials. And we just love this show. We strive to bring great content, but we do need your help. So Patreon is a good way. Leave us a review. We appreciate you. Thanks a lot.